You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. faces. I just, I flew in from Colorado Springs last night about 11 o'clock. I was there for three days at a Doug Weiss conference for women. There were a couple of hundred, hundred women there. And um, uh, so I stayed with Tiffany and Davis, my daughter and son-in-law there. And Thursday night, uh, Tiffany and I took the dogs out to a park to throw the ball. She's got a, a beautiful new white German shepherd that uh, she's training and so we, it was really good. We got a chance to visit and, uh, just by ourselves for a while. And uh, she said, Dad, now those of you that follow me on Facebook, you know my daughter's kind of crazy like I am. She said, Dad, I've accepted it. I have become my father. And I said, no, sweetheart, you are your father on steroids. <laughs> you are your father if he wasn't in the ministry. The ministry has actually saved my life because there's no telling where I, what I would have done without no the, the ministry. Anyway... Then we got to talk. We have a family text stream called Ohana where everybody in the family is on it. And she said, you know, Dad, we have a sibling text stream just between the uh, Zach and me and, and our spouses. And I said, well, really? Well, I want to be on that. She says, no, we talk about y'all. We talk about you and Mom. And she said, for instance, Ashley texted me. Ashley is my son's wife. Ashley texted me a few weeks ago and said, oh, my gosh, your brother is becoming your mother. <laughs> And Tiffany said, suck it up, buttercup. It's in his genes. So my daughter has become me, and my son is becoming his mom. And, and I say to both of them, you could do worse. Maybe. 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 Anyway, this afternoon, I'm going to Corpus Christi. I'll be there this week doing a fearless event with a group of women, and then I'm teaching at a men's conference over the weekend. So uh, good, things are, good things are happening. I came in last night. Uh, took all the clothes out of my suitcase, threw them into the washer, washed them, and then uh, this morning I got up and threw them in the dryer, and then I just threw them all back in my suitcase and zipped it up, and I thought, I'm probably not going to need anything that I didn't need in Colorado. Probably not. And, uh, but I'm driving to Corpus, so I've got my pickup, and half of what I own is in my truck, so anyway, I'll, I'll have plenty. This morning, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jude. If you go to the book of Revelation, go back one step, and you are at the book of Jude. Hang a left. Hang a left. It's very small. It's a small little book. It's only 25 verses. But we're going to be studying through the book of Jude for the next probably seven or eight weeks, verse by verse, and sometimes even word by word. And Jude proves for us the old saying that big things come in small packages Mm. because only 25 verses But this little letter that Jude wrote, the half-brother of Jesus, packs a wallop. In fact, Jude is short for the word, the name Judas, who was, he identifies in verse 1 that he's the brother of James, and that means then he and James are full-blood brothers, but they are only half-brothers of Jesus because Jesus, Joseph was not Jesus' father, the Holy Spirit was. So in verse 1, He kicks right off, and he identifies who he is writing to. He says, this letter is going to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, that is going to form the summation of the message this morning, that singular verse. That's who he is writing to. In verse 3, he explains why he is writing, and thus the name of the sermon series. He said, beloved, 
while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints, delivered to God's people. And so he's appealing to these Christians for them to contend for the faith. In a sense, what he's saying is that we need to be contentious Christians. You know, it's interesting to me that there is increasingly an attitude among many professing Christians today that Jesus called us to be nice. Now, Jesus certainly did not call us to be mean, but he never called us to be nice. I I don't think Jesus ever said, go into all the world and be nice. Jesus, in fact, wasn't nice. He wasn't mean, but he said some things that we would consider to not really be nice things, like to the Pharisees, you're like a bunch of snakes, you're a brood of vipers, you're a whitewashed tomb. Outside you look good, inside you're full of dead men's bones. He goes in and turns the table over in the temple. I mean, Jesus was not mean. But Jesus was certainly not nice. He says to the woman at the well, you're the woman that's been married five times and you're living with the Shacking up with a dude right now. That's now, not nice. You know, that was true and it needed to be said, but you wouldn't consider that to be nice conversation, nice polite conversation. Paul speaks of himself in Philippians 1.6 as one who has been called for the defense of the gospel, to contend for the gospel. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, always be ready to make a defense of the gospel. And that is a recurring theme all through the New Testament. It is especially in the little letter of Jude, but it is a theme all through the New Testament. And why is that? Why are we called as Christ followers to be contentious Christians, to contend for the faith, to be defending the faith? And it's because of this, because in every generation... In every country, ever since Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, there have been those who have denied the faith, there have been those who attacked the faith, and there have been those who pretended to be a part of the faith. And so what Jude is saying is there are those, ultimately, there are those who contend for the faith, and there are those who pretend to be in the faith. Did you get that? There are those who contend for the faith, and there are those who pretend to be in the faith. And so he called us to be contenders for the faith, not pretenders in the faith. And so we must be able to tell the difference. And a great deal of what Jude says in this little letter is about telling the difference. You know, my experience in ministry over the years, I've been here on staff since 2008, my experience is that being a Christian in Texas is really easy until it requires something of you, right? It's easy to pray. It's easy to learn the lingo. It's easy to, to, to walk the aisle. It's easy to get into church routine. But when faith begins to require something of you, it becomes uncomfortable. When it begins to cost you your money or your relationships or your career or your comfort, you really begin to start to see who the real deal is and who has just been pretending, as James said. So a warning for us before we begin this is that if you are not secure in your salvation, if you are not certain of your relationship with Jesus, this series will hopefully challenge you and God willing, make you uncomfortable. It's going to rock your world. But we're not going to make it uncomfortable 
at least intentionally this morning. This morning really is all about comfort. That's how Jude Mm. begins the letter, and that's how he ends the letter. He bookends this letter with a message of comfort to those who are the real deal, the contenders, not the pretenders. And and when you begin to look at the scope of the letter in between, that's when he really begins to take all of the shots. <laughs> Those who fall away or are deconstructing, that's a real popular term mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. It just means people who are walking away from Jesus, people that have adopted worldly practices and have decided, I'd rather do this than what Scripture says. I'd rather do what the world says than what Jesus says. And, and, and so it is. Historically, there have really been two threats to the church there's persecution. That's the first threat to the church. And, and again, historically, when you read church history, it never works out well for the world. <laughs> Whenever the church is persecuted, it, it just ends up fanning the flames of the gospel and the church explodes. Persecution never really works. But where persecution fails, perversion, the second thing, usually has a little bit better luck. This is where people begin to, again, adopt in the world's ideas and practices and try to mix it into Christianity. And, and, and once again, historically, if you look back, especially into those early formative years of the church, you, you find several councils and synods, the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon and so on and so forth. What are they doing there? What's happening there is that false teaching, this, this practice of what we would call syncretism, taking the world's ideas, ideologies, practices, and trying to mix them into Christianity, this began happening right after the ascension of Jesus. Very early. And so these councils were meetings of local church leaders to decide what of this is biblical and what of this the Scripture denounces, and then making an an official statement on that thing. And so very interesting that ever since the ascension of Jesus, Christians have been contending for the truth, and that threat of perversion is still very much present here today. We must contend for the faith. We must, and and, and I don't mean James and I, okay? I've heard many people say, you know, we need more pastors like you guys. That's why we pay y'all. Right. right. Case in point, this week. James made a really, really well-worded post about the, the need for speaking the truth, even if it caught, not being the pastors that, that build these big churches, but speaking the truth. And the sentiment of a lot of comments, both on there and really just at large, are, you know, if more pastors would li- were like y'all, the world would be a better place. And folks, that's just false. That's not true. That's such a consumer mentality. If more Christians were willing to speak the truth, the world mm. would be a better place. God didn't call pastors to save the world, to bring hope to the world. God called the church to be the hope of the world. Our job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. That's what we're doing here this morning. We are equipping you to know how to contend for the faith, not so that we'll keep doing it. We will keep doing it, whether you like it or not, but so that you may join us, that we would contend for the faith. We have to know what we believe before we can really contend for it. And, and we have to know even before we know what we believe, who we are. Amen. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're going to start this morning asking the question, who are you? Who are you? Do you really know who you are? And then we're going to unfold what the scripture says. Are you ready? Well, then let's go. James is going to begin us with the first point. We are sovereignly called. There are three key words in the first verse 
that he uses to describe these Christians to whom he's writing. And we're going to key off of those three words because they are very, very important. We're going to dig a deep well. This is not one that we have a time to finish this morning, especially since we've done all this other stuff. But it is it, skimming across the surface. First of all, as Derek said, as Christians, we are called by the sovereign God. In fact, the first designation that Jude uses for those to whom he is writing for his audience, he says, to the called. The called, what does that mean? Called by whom? Well, obviously, he's talking about being called by God. He says, you have been called by God. Now, right off the bat, Jude puts salvation in God's hands and only God's hands. It is God who calls us to Jesus Christ. And whenever the New Testament uses this terminology of God's call, get this word, put it in your dictionary, it is always an effectual call. The effectual call of God is what theologians have used to refer to the fact that the New Testament teaches that when God calls, it is always effective. It is always effectual because it always accomplishes his purpose. You cannot thwart the sovereign call of God. Now, let me give you an example of this. If I were to call you on the phone and you hear it ring, but you don't answer was my call an effectual call? No, it wasn't because it didn't accomplish its purpose, was it, right? I called in order to talk to you, but you didn't answer, so I didn't get to talk to you, so my call was not an effectual call. But God's call is presented all through the New Testament as always being effectual. He always connects. He always gets the answer that he is looking for. He always accomplishes his purpose when he calls someone to Christ Jesus. Hmm. Now, let, for a moment, let me just read some scriptures. This is a quick survey of the New Testament. There are so many more places we could go. But just for a moment, relax and let the Word of God wash over you and let just get a feel for how often this is stated. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called, there's the effectual call. Was Paul an apostle when he wrote this? Was he an apostle when he wrote this? Yes, he was. And he says, I'm a, an apostle because I was called as an apostle. God called me, and he set me apart for the gospel of God, the effectual call of God. Romans 1.6 among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Romans 9, 23 through 24. And God made known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called. So he prepared us beforehand for glory, and then he called us. Is that an effectual call? You bet it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 through 24. He says, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, there you are, there's that word, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He says, it's, the gospel only makes sense to the called, to everybody else. It's a stumbling block and it's foolishness. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. But when God, who had set me apart, this is Paul talking, set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. God set him apart from his mother's womb, he says, and then he called him through his grace. Mm. 
Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body and there is one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain, gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, he says to young Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. In other words, be a contentious Christian, Timothy, fight the fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. He says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, do you, are you getting this? I mean, I, I, could have just, I could read for an hour here just in the New Testament alone of the fact that when God calls, it is an effectual call. When he calls someone to Jesus Christ, that person answers the call and comes to Jesus Christ. So, so Jude is starting off here reminding these to whom he is writing, listen, you're in the faith. You're the called of God. But I'm going to later in this letter, I'm going to be talking to you about some pretenders. I'm going to be talking to you about some false prophets. I'm going to be talking about some false teachers, and I want you to go out there, and I want you to contend for the faith, for this is God's call upon you. Now, now let me take you to the, the summation text of the New Testament that really puts the process of salvation, delineates it perfectly. Mm. And there are five steps that the Scripture gives us from God's perspective of what happens for someone to come to Christ. Romans chapter 8, Verse 28 through 30, he said, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. We like that part of it, don't we? Oh, yeah. Amen. Put it on we, my mug. We really, really, right here. We, we really rarely mm. understand what this means in its context. All things work together for good to those who love God. To who? To those who are called. He only works all things together for good to those whom he has called according to his purpose. And then he talks about his purpose in the next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of a son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this text gives five steps in God's work towards salvation. And it's interesting that two of them take place before he ever calls us. Ooh, now you're meddling. Yeah, he's already working before he calls us to himself. He does two things before he calls us, and then he does two more after he calls us. The calling to Christ is right in the center of the salvific plan. Isn't that great theological Ooh, terminology, salvific? salvific? Okay, so let's talk very quickly about these five steps. First of all, he says, there is the foreknowledge of God for those whom he foreknew. 
And this word means to know intimately. It, and at times, it is used actually of the sexual relationship of a husband and wife. It is intimate knowledge. God's foreknowledge means that he determines to make you an object of his love. He has determined, he has foreknown you, and he has determined that you will be the recipient of the fullness of his love. So, those whom he foreknew, second of all, it says he predestined. Those whom he foreknows, he predestines. Predestines to what? It says, to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Now, this is God's purpose in salvation. He foreknows. He says, I'm going to show my everlasting love on that one. I'm going to predestine that that individual is going to be perfectly conformed to the image of my son, Jesus. Now, this is the sanctification process that we talk about during this life, that we are to be constantly being transformed into the image of Christ as we come to know him. But did you know that everyone who is called of God with the effectual call will become perfectly like Jesus? Not in this life, but when we see him as he is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is talking about eternity. God's purpose is going to happen. You say, well, I'm not all that much like Jesus. Well, if you're the called, you will be one day. You're going to be perfectly in the image of Jesus. So those whom he foreknew, he predestined that individual is going to be perfectly in the image of my son Jesus. And then he says, and those whom he predestined, he calls. Here's where we come in. Now he comes to us. But before the effectual call of God, he already knows us. He already has predestined that individually we will be conformed to the image of his son Jesus. Now, folks, if God's call was not an effectual call, in other words, if you could say, I'm not going to answer God's call. If you could say, oh, I'm not going to listen to God's call. If you could make that decision to reject God's call, it wouldn't be an effectual call. And it would thwart his purpose because it says he's already foreknown you. And he's already predestined you to become conformed to the image of his, Christ, of, of his son Jesus. And if you could not answer his call to Christ, then his purpose would be thwarted. The sovereign God's purpose would be thwarted. His call wouldn't have been an effectual call. Are you hanging here? Mm. Okay. So his call is always effectual. He foreknows. He predestines. That one is going to be conformed to the image of my son Jesus. And then he calls. He calls you to Jesus. That's an effectual call. But then it goes on. He says, now after he calls, what does he do? He justifies. Those whom he calls, he justifies. And the word justify means to be made right. We are justified before a holy God in Christ Jesus. Jesus' perfection on the cross, his perfect sacrifice. And when we come to him, then we come into Christ and we are justified before the holy God. Now if his call was not effectual, then Scripture couldn't say that everyone God calls, he justifies. Mm. Because you can't be justified apart from faith. You can't be justified apart from Christ. So if you could say no to Christ when God called, then he couldn't say, well, everyone I call, I justify. Are you with me? And then he comes to the end. He goes all the way to the end. The fourth one is, the fifth one is glorify. And this refers to what John was saying a moment ago. In that time when we see Christ as he is, when we die and, and go to heaven, or if we're alive when Christ comes, that he says we shall be like him. We will be perfectly transformed into his image, but we'll see him as he is. It's when we receive the glorified body. Now, folks, get this. Understand this. Before he calls us, the effectual call, he first determines that we will be the object of his love. 
And then he determines, and I'm going to conform this one into the perfect image of my son Jesus. And then he calls with that effectual call, and you come to him, and then he justifies you before himself, and then one day will glorify you. This is a sovereign work of God. Salvation is God's work from the very beginning to the very end. It does not depend upon you or I. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a great security thing, isn't it? Very good. Because if your salvation depended on you, well, that's a pretty lousy foundation for salvation. Very. I'm thankful that my salvation doesn't depend on my faithfulness. It doesn't depend on my power. It doesn't depend on my will. It is all the will of the Father. Now, then someone will say, well, but I had to respond with faith, didn't I? Wasn't it my faith? Didn't I have to place faith in Jesus Christ? Yes, you did. Well, wasn't that my faith? Scripture says, no, it wasn't. It wasn't even your faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace, in other words, you can't earn it or deserve it, by grace, you've been saved through faith. Okay, well, there it is. I placed faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore, I came to Christ. And then it says, saved through faith, and that is not your own. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. God says, you don't even have the faith to believe, so I have to even give you that. Mm. How secure can you be in salvation? Knowing it's God's work, it's not you. He chose you. He called you. He justified you, and he will glorify you. you now, know, October rolls around, mm -hmm. and it's like the ghost of Martin Luther just, <laughs> just descended. Just descended, <laughs> Just yeah. descended. Folks, this is what the Word of God says. And everybody wants to say, well, it was my free choice. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It was a sovereign purpose and plan <laughs> of God. He gave you the ability to choose Jesus by his call. And when he calls, you will answer that call. Now, here's, let, me, let me go back to the telephone illustration, then I'll turn it over to Derek. Go back to this for a minute. So here's God. He has a phone. And he wants to call you. But there's a problem. You don't have a phone. So you can't answer God's call. It's because Obama didn't give you a phone. That's right. <laughs> was that back? Everybody was going to have a phone in the that Obama was, years? That was that, the deal, man. He okay. promised us a phone. Okay. okay. I didn't get one. Well, so you didn't get that phone. And so God wants to call you, but you can't answer because you don't have a phone. So you know what God does? He gives you a phone. That's your faith. He has to give you the phone. And when he calls and you hear it ring, you pick it up, and he says, you're my child. I chose you before the foundation of the world. I predestined that you will be conformed to the image of my son, Jesus. And because of this call, you picked it up. I'm justifying you before myself, and there will be a day and time when I will glorify you for eternity in heaven. Now, folks, that's security of salvation. And that's important that you understand this, whether that's where you are or not, because in the intervening verses, he's going to be talking about a whole lot of people that God didn't call. But they're pretenders. They're false prophets. They're false teachers. They look good, but they're not the real deal. Mm. So we are all sovereignly called by God, the effectual call. And then? We're sovereignly loved. Jude says, beloved in God the Father. And it's a strange way of talking. We don't really use beloved in the verbal sense. Normally, if you hear it used, it's more of a noun, like my beloved. But uh, Jude uses it here as a verb, and, and really it's just a word that means loved. You could read it, to those who are called loved in God the Father. Now, I don't want to go too in-depth in the language here. I, I realize that that is um, difficult for some of you to track with, and 
certainly we're not trying to, to prove anything by, by diving in, but part of going verse by verse and sometimes word by word through a study means going deeper into the language. And one of the ways that we extract meaning out of the text is by looking at the original language and how it's formed. We call this exegesis. So the word here, love, it's the Greek word agapao. It means to love, but it's in the perfect middle participial form. I'm not going to try to explain <laughs> what all that means. Um, but hegapomenois is how it is formed here. And it doesn't just mean to love. The fact that it is in the perfect tense tells us something else. It means that the action of the verb occurred in the past with the results continuing into the present. Okay? Action in the past results in the present. So God loved us in the past, but the results of that loving have continued. Now, I want to caution you um, just up front to say that whenever we study Scripture, we run the risk of imposing our modern interpretation and understanding of words into an ancient context. And so we always got to kind of draw back and, and understand how we look at a word and how they looked at words and ask if that's the same thing. There are fewer words than, I, I can't think of any other, that are more loaded <laughs> than the word love. Love is such a ridiculous word in the English language when we're just being honest about it. It is used with such diversity. Let me give you an example, or four. Uh, example number one, I love my wife. That's a seemingly good, right, yeah. Oh, it's so it's, nice. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. This is a good thing. I love my wife. Exam you also love crackers. Ex well, example number two, I love to go to church. Now, I, I do. I love to come to church. Church is one of my favorite parts of the day. Certainly, my love for going to church is a little different than my love for my wife. Same word. Right? Same word. Example number three, I love Mexican food. And all God's people said? Jack and Melody Young said amen. 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 Now, we can see the diversity here. Here's number four. This is a, my favorite of mine. I love my wife, and I love taking her to my most loved Mexican restaurants. Somebody learning our language is going to be really confused by this, all this. This is why English is actually considered the most difficult language in the world to learn because of the diversity with which we use words. The word is just silly, and, and it creates problems because since we use the word love so flippantly, it diminishes the power of the word a little bit. So when I read loved in God the Father, it doesn't really strike the chord like it should, the, the chord that it is intended to strike. God's love is different than ours in every way imaginable. It is different than anything else that you can possibly come into contact with. Let me give you three ways that's different. Number one, God's love is immeasurable. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays the so-called high priestly prayer, really mm -hmm. powerful prayer. Says some really controversial things in there. Like, for example, I am praying for Christians, not the world, mm -hmm. but those you have called. Kind of okay. interesting coming off the tales of what James just talked about. In verses 22 and 23, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, not the world, the church, even as you loved me. Hmm. What he's saying is God will love you as much as God loves Jesus. This is an immeasurable amount. You cannot really wrap your mind around this. Did you know? I mean, think about this for a minute. Let's just get philosophical. You cannot imagine something that is uncountable. You can't do it. 
As hard as you try, you cannot imagine an uncountable number. Even large countable numbers are very confusing. If I say, for example, you have two sheep on one side of a fence and two sheep on another side of a fence, if you take the fence away, you have four sheep, right? I can do that. You can wrap your mind around that. that You can visualize it. Can you visualize a million sheep? How about a billion sheep? Can you do that? You can't. You cannot do it. It's, it's, and, and here's the interesting part is a million and a billion, these are concepts that are so big, they're almost kind of just the same thing. Like when someone says a million and a billion, you're like, your brain is like, yeah, it's a really large number. How about 25 trillion 25 in American trillion. debt? Yeah, 25 trillion in American debt. You know, that's why we don't who care can, about it. Who can compute? Yeah, we don't care because that number is just too big. It doesn't compute. Let me give you a, an example of, of why this is a problem when it comes to determining size and immeasurability, all right? Imagine one million seconds. You really can't do it, but for a minute, hold it in your mind. If we convert a million seconds into days, do you know how many days you get? You get 11 days. Now, that's sizable. Like, I can, I can wrap my mind around that, right? 11 days, right? That, that, that's normal. Uh, what about a billion seconds? Again, can't really wrap my mind around that. If I told you that a billion seconds is 31 and a half days. Sounds reasonable, right? 11 days for a million, 31 and a half for a billion. It's not. It's 31 and a half years. A million and a billion is pretty different. There's a big difference. But you can't tell because you can't really count it. You could count it if you took enough time, but you can't. You wouldn't. God's love is even bigger than that. It's, it's uncountable. It's something that you cannot possibly hold in your mind. It's bigger than you can comprehend. It is immeasurable. Second, it's immutable. Now, what does immutable mean? It's not a word we use very often. It means unchanging. And again, this is not something that you can really imagine in your mind. Everything in the universe, understand this, is changing right now. Everything. Every single thing is moving from order to chaos. That's the second law of thermodynamics. And beyond that, everything is aging. Everything is in a state of decay. You are older right now than you were when we began this message. That's how long we've been talking. <laughs> yeah. God's love is unchanging. It is untarnished. It, 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 it is unmoving. There, there is nothing that can change its, its size and comprehensibility. It is immeasurable. It is immutable. Number three, it is immortal. Jeremiah 31.3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. The word everlasting there in the Hebrew, it's the same word that just means forever. Psalm 136, verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures for a long time. (laughs) No, forever, forever, undying, immortal love. Paul really captures this, I think, perfectly in Romans 8, 38, and 39. This is just 10 verses after the one that, that James read. He says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in mm. Christ Jesus. And who are, who are us? The, the church, called. the called. The called. The called out ones. This is the love of God. It is immeasurable. It is immutable. It is immortal. It's, it's unlike anything you can possibly imagine. And you may be thinking right now, well, you know what? I don't need all that theology. What's really most important is that I love God. <laughs> well, the Apostle John would disagree with you. John said in 1 John four nineteen, we love him because he first loved us. He Did you know, uh, understand this. If you are a Christian, if you identify as a Christian, the only reason 
that you can say, I love God, is because God first loved you. And if you are not called, you can't love God. No. You can love the concept of God, but only the called can love God. So we are sovereignly called, we are sovereignly loved. Last, we'll wrap it up here, we are sovereignly kept. Last thing Jude says is kept for Jesus Christ. And the word kept here in the Greek, it's a really interesting word. It means to watch over protectively or to guard or to be garrisoned about. It has the idea of a military, uh, kind of a military perspective of guarding with, with uh, extreme attention being paid to the object that is being guarded or protected. It's a word that meant a lot to Jude, apparently, because it was the most popular word in his letter. He used it more than anything else, <laughs> five, five times to be exact in the 25 verses that we have. He uses it once here in verse 2, twice in verse 6, once in verse 13, and finally once in verse And don't 21. be confused. It's translated differently in each one, but it's yes. the same Greek word. Same word. Kept, preserved, reserved. Uh, it's used in a different, kind of translated in different ways. Again, uh, like the word loved, this is a perfect participle. So it means that the action took place in the past, and the results of that action are continuing mm. into the present. But what's most interesting about it is that it's in the dative case. Now, again, I don't expect you to know what that means, but understand that when we're translating Greek, a word in the dative can, can be translated in a lot of ways. There's a, a very high diversity in the way that we understand it and the way that we translate it. Uh, and there are varying views across commentaries on the way that this should be translated. I'm going to give you three of them because really all three of them are right theologically. Jude likely had one in mind, and I'll tell you which one I think that it is, but um, all three of them are perfect translations of this, and they all three hold theological weight. The Bible backs them up perfectly. Number one, we are kept for Jesus. This is how most of your translations probably read. Uh, this is the date of advantage. In other words, what, what Jude is communicating here is that God the Father is the one protecting you, keeping you for the benefit of Jesus, for the purpose of or, or the advantage of Jesus. In other words, there's a coming a time when Jesus will take us into his kingdom. That will be in that future age. And so God is protecting us in the meantime, keeping us from danger. One of the major themes of the book of Jude is that future age, that future time. As Christians, we will suffer in this present age, but there is a future time coming in the second coming of Christ. And, and so though we will face persecution and trial in this world, we can have hope that the Father is preserving us, keeping us from falling away spiritually. 1 Peter uh, 1.4 talks about an inheritance that's being laid up for us in heaven. And it says that it's being reserved in heaven. It's the same exact word as kept here in Jude 1. That God is keeping and protecting our inheritance, and he is also keeping and protecting us. And the reality is that this is always how God has operated with regard to his people. Mm -hmm. Not just now, but all throughout time. Isaiah 42.6, he says, I am Yahweh. I have called you, there's that word, in righteousness, and I will also hold you by the hand, there's the act of love, and watch over you, protect you, guard you. He's saying, I have called and loved and protected, because it's what he's always done. We are kept for Jesus. Number two, we are kept in Jesus. This is the date of location. You know that scripture talks about us being in Christ more than it talks about Christ being in us. <laughs> we like to talk about Jesus being in me. 
And that's true. Biblically, it is true. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God, dwells in his people. But overwhelmingly, the emphasis of Scripture is that we are in Christ. That is the one that is emphasized more than anything. It's interesting that we are protected for Jesus against the world, but we are protected in Jesus against what? <laughs> the wrath of God. Against sin, yeah. Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath, the scripture says, is burning against sin, and that Jesus, when he justifies, like James talked about a moment ago in the, after that call, when he justifies, he acts as a propitiation, is the word the scripture uses there, where he takes upon the wrath of God in our place. He is our substitute. And so that if we are in Christ, we are saved from the wrath of God that is hitting him. I thought about this this week, that uh, growing up, my family, uh, we have family in Riesel, Texas. Anyone heard of Riesel, Texas? Any? I went to school at Baylor University and have never heard of Riesel, Texas. Yeah, it's, it's just outside of Waco. It's just outside of Waco. It's uh, In 2010, the census showed it was population 1,007. So that tells you a little <laughs> bit about Riesel, Texas. We had an antique store and a gas station. That was, that was it. And uh, there weren't a lot of people in Riesel. There weren't a lot of businesses in Riesel. There were a ton of tornadoes in Riesel. Um, we used to go there all the time as uh, a family. We'd have these big family get-togethers. And more times than one, we would end up in my uncle's storm cellar. Everyone has storm cellars out there because there's just tons of tornadoes. And, and several times we were there, at least twice in my memory, tornadoes touched down and we ended up in that cellar. And, and I thought about that this week, that what a great picture of being in Christ. Because the storm cellar is taking the full force, the full brunt of that storm against it, but those who are in the cellar are preserved. They're kept Right? right? Just as Jesus takes the full force of God's wrath against sin, those of us who are in Christ are kept. Do you and remember protected. the smell of your grandparents' storm cellar? Oh, I do. That musty that smell. That musty old smell. And those snakes oh, and yeah. those spiders. Oh, yeah. But yeah. you know, I'd rather face a snake and a spider than a tornado. Absolutely, you? man. You can kill a snake like that. You can step on a stop. <laughs> I'm a spider. snake killer, man. We're kept for Jesus, by <laughs> Jesus, or uh, for Jesus, in Jesus, and last, we are kept by Jesus. And this is the one that I think Jude likely meant, that, that those who are called by God are simultaneously experiencing two things, God the Father's love and Jesus Christ's protection, his keeping. They are working together to protect and love and preserve their people. Let's come back to this question. Let's wrap it up here. Who are you? Who are you? It's a good, good question for you to consider. It's an important question because if we are going to contend for the faith, if we are going to be contentious Christians, then we have to stand for what God stands for. That's what he's asking us to contend for, are those things that are important to him. And, and you need to know before you do that that you even belong to him. You need to understand that you do not belong to yourself. You're not the arbiter of your own world. You're not the arbiter of morality and righteousness. You belong to the king, and the king decides what is right and what is wrong. And who has he said you are? He said that you are sovereignly called. And it's an effectual call. It's a call that works every time. He says that you are sovereignly loved, unlike any love you can possibly wrap your mind around, and that you are sovereignly kept for Jesus, in Jesus, and by Jesus. And listen, if that is true, you don't get to decide what is right and wrong. 
You don't. And what Jude is writing about is people that took a lot of worldly ideas and brought it in and tried to mix it with the truth of Scripture. And he says, no. no. You don't get to decide that. You don't get to do that. You don't get to decide that. Your life should reflect the value of Christ. The question is, does it? Does it? You're being called by Jude, by the Scriptures, to contend for the faith against the world. And the truth of the matter is, a lot of Christians in the church today are contending against God on behalf of the world. <laughs> Boy, it's true. You've adopted the world's ideas and ideologies. You've adopted the world's practices, and you need to repent. You need to remember who you are. You're called, you're loved, and you're kept. It's time you know to what act I think like is going to happen during this series, and I pray it happens, that some people who have been dunked in a baptistry are members of a church, come every week, realize they're not of the faith. As, as he gives these descriptions, and they will hear the call of God. I believe some of you, God intends to call you. Yeah. This, he's foreknown you, he's predestined you, and during this series, he's going to call you genuinely to himself. Amen. Call you out of cultural Christianity and call you to Jesus Christ. And that's why he begins with this security. He wants these Christians to not begin doubting their salvation because of what he's about to say. You're, if you're called, this is you. But there are a lot among us, he says, who are not, and we need to contend for the faith. With them. And there will be some that will walk away. And there and, will be. And what I will say to We're that. We're going to hack some of you off. What I'll say to that is, is 1 John chapter 2, John says that there were those who went out from us to make it plain to us that they were never of us. There is a call in the church in America today. God is drawing a dividing line among those who are genuinely his people and those who only pretend to be. And that line is being drawn in the sand. Make no mistake about it. And many want us to back off. Many have called us to back off off. We don't back off. We contend for the faith. And if that offends you, it may be an indication you're not in the faith and you need to fall before him. I'd, way, I'd way rather piss you off than God. That's it. I'm just going to be honest. You see, and, I, and I'm, I'm, this has always been my methodology and I'm proud this young man, God has planted it in his heart. I'm not about building a church membership. I'm not about building a crowd. I love crowds. That, that means nothing. I'm about building a body of genuine believers who have been called by God, who are loved by him, and are kept by him, and we contend for the faith. I said Friday night, two weeks ago, I will, I will, I will never try to convince you to join this church. Amen. Because if I have to convince you to join, I'll have to convince you to stay. I want you to join City on a Hill because you find the mission of God here compelling enough to be here. And we want you to join Jesus first. That's right. <laughs> Folks, this is going to be powerful. This is going to be a tough series. It's not going to be easy to hear. And some of you are going, you know what? I think I'm going to check out for the next six or seven weeks. That sends a message in and of itself right there. Mm. You might ought to look in the mirror and listen to that message. That's right. Come, bring your Bibles, bring your heart. And let's do the hard work. And let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to. Lead us in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, just such a refreshing reminder of who we are in your son, Jesus Christ. We are called, we are loved, and we are kept. Not by our power, not by anything that we've done, but by your sovereign plan, your divine love, 
and your might. God, we are grateful for that. And I pray for those that James just talked about a moment ago, those who have maybe bought into the cultural idea of Christianity but have never bowed in full submission to your son Jesus. And I pray that this would be the means by which you call them. You have foreknown them, you have predestined them, and that this would be that moment in time when you effectually call them to you. And I pray for those who, who Lord, are going to be resistant, who are, who are going to want to harden their heart towards some of what we have to say. And I, and I pray, God, that your, your spirit would soften them, that they would hear the truth, that they would listen to the wisdom of your scripture, because that's what we desire to present here, not our own thoughts and opinions, but your word untarnished, God. We are grateful that you call us to contend for your faith, for your mm. truth. I pray we do it well. Amen. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Oh, that, that's maybe the most powerful term.